You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Business Journal podcast, where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. Liz Mathis is a state senator with a role in a family business in marketing and advertising. She also just retired from a 10-year run advocating for children and families at Four Oaks. And you also may know her from her long career as a TV news anchor at KWWL and KCRG. I talked to Liz about getting her start in journalism, doing a job well in situations where there are no do-overs, and the calculus of making a career change. Liz also shares her thoughts on leadership action as opposed to leadership ideas, prioritizing problems to solve, finding your lane and how to stay in it, and recognizing a larger calling to lead for positive change. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, you know, as I look back, I grew up watching you on TV as a as a kid here in Iowa City. Um, you and Bruce Downey and everybody back in your broadcast journalism days. But the thing, you know, looking back on your professional career, uh, what really jumps out are these sort of di- rich, distinct chapters to your to your career journey. You know, you started off in broadcast journalism, um, you know, onto a nonprofit executive, and now, of course, as a state senator uh, in government. Can you talk a bit about you know? how you've navigated from from those different career chapters one to the next was it happenstance was it by design um talk us talk a little bit about uh, about your journey oh wow you know um it was just part happenstance part luck and a little bit of navigation combined so you know when i started out in broadcasting the, the funny part was that everybody in my family was either a a, a teacher or a nurse okay. and you know the expectation at that time i'm a baby boomer you know so the expectation was well you're going either going to be a teacher or a nurse when i told them that i was uh going to go into journalism and perhaps television journalism my grandmother said will you be able to fix my tv that was her <laughs> you know i said yeah. well maybe still yeah right have ears with a little aluminum foil on the top. That's about all I knew. But um, yeah, I'd say that um, when I try to describe the three careers to people and say, there's more similarity than you know, and the similarities are really the skill sets that you learn. So in journalism, you're constantly picking up the phone and asking people to give you information. Yep. And then, you know, in politics, the same thing. You're picking up the phone and you're talking to people and you're connecting them with resources. So it's more it's almost like um, the same skills that you learn in business, in sales. It's being open to, you know, just going out and being more assertive and aggressive and uh, calling people, meeting with people, gathering information. So it's those same skill sets that are across the board. In terms of child welfare, I worked, um, you know, for Four Oaks for the last 13 years. So yep. it was crisis communication, fundraising, out there doing community engagement, making sure that people knew more about child welfare and child mental health. So my whole life has been about information and the dissemination of information, really. Yeah, and that that 
that thread that's kind of woven through all those different careers around being an excellent communicator, right? And and, and all those different roles that you that you talked about there. As you were a kid growing up, was that always? Did you always sort of have that ability to to talk to people, or was that more of a learned skill along the way? Well, let's see. My two sisters got kicked out of 4-H because they talked too much. <laughs> so, um, so they wouldn't even let me in because they knew my genetics was probably that way. Um, my mom and dad. So um, my dad was this great listener, but he was also, you know, he was a farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, the, he was the youngest student at Loris College at age 15, but he was in World War II, oh. so part of the greatest generation. So I watched how he kind of maneuvered um, talking as, as he was on the school board, as he was on the County Conservation Commission, he was always very active. And we were the last family to always leave church because, mm-hmm. you know, we were standing on the church steps talking to everybody right. <laughs> we yep. were leaving every Sunday. Right. Yeah. And so my, and my mom was a one room, uh, one room schoolhouse teacher. And then oh. she became a nurse through the, the Corps cadet, you know, through the world, through world war two, mm-hmm. she was a talker, but they also were great listeners. So I learned a lot of uh, listening skills. In fact, Um, My mother used to criticize my dad about, you know, people come over here with their broken down, you know, farm equipment and you just fix it and you listen to them and you do all these things. And there was a little bit of consternation for her because he was always listening to people and their problems. And that's just who he was. And that's how he became a leader in the community. So I kind of watched that, you know, how they were good friends with everybody. And, um, there wasn't anybody that they would ever turn away who needed help. And that's what I grew up in. And there were times where I would, uh, you know, being a farm kid, you're out there on the farm, you got to figure out, you know, your what you're going to, how you're going to play and what you're going to do. And I would go into his machine shed and I'd find stuff and I'd, 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 I'd set up this like um, uh, two by four with some sawhorses and try to sell stuff. You know, like I, yeah. early QVC, you know, yeah, yeah, try to yeah. sell stuff like it was on TV, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and that was my early television, really. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I think one of the things I admire about the you know broadcast journalists and the folks watching them is it, it's one of those things that it always looks so easy, but it's definitely yeah. not. Even you know, you're even if reading a teleprompter, but when that light goes on and you're going, talk a bit about how you built that craft over time. You started at KWWL in 1980. What was that arc like, you know, as you developed the, uh, you know, that that craft of of being on air and talking and, you know, a little bit of performance involved? You know, there's obviously journalism involved. Talk a bit about your development um, as a journalist. Oh, God, when I started out, I just just the other day, I was down in the basement looking through some uh, old papers that I had and my first contract, first TV contract for reporting. I made nine thousand dollars and I thought it was just rich. I mean, you know, rich and then um, became an anchor there. So first female anchor of the evening news on Channel 7. So that was back in 19. Well, I started in 1980. So 82, I started anchoring and then I worked there till 86. But I would have to say that, um, you know, being on television, you have to make quick decisions. Mm -hmm. You have to really um, think through some things very quickly. What's the best thing to say? What's the best thing to do? Uh, And it's a lot of teamwork. So you constantly have, you know, uh, this earpiece in your ear. And there are people who are you're working with to try to make sure that that product every night, that if it's at five, six or 10, that's when, you know, the the regular newscasts were on, that you were able to 
to work with others to make sure that that happened and that there weren't these um, moments where people could see flaws, yeah. you know, in the production of it. And it seems so flawless, like every time you turn on the TV, I mean, it's, it, it seems that way. Oh, and it is not behind the scenes. It's like making sausage. You know, it's really yeah. it's really hard to do. But when you have some really good people and you've worked together for a long time, so like Ron Steele and I, I mean, we would just look at each other and you would know what uh, I would know where he was going with something or usually he knew where I was going with stuff. Yeah. But um, there were very comical times. He was a great guy to work with because he just, um, you know, he took things very seriously. But there were lighthearted times too. Bob Hogue, you know, was on the air at the time. Oh, Mr. Oh My, and um, and Craig yeah. Johnson, and we were just really a cohesive team. And I think that's what made us successful. That's and that's what helped me with my confidence and being able to again make those quick decisions on air and know what to say and when to say it. Sure. And then I I went to work for college for a couple of years and then taught um, First Amendment law and then also writing and reporting mm -hmm. for a couple of years. Then I went back into TV and started working at Channel 9 and the same thing. I went back to Channel 9 for slightly different reasons. It was because they were creating a new newsroom blueprint. They were going to try to create a different model as we were transitioning to more online. Yep. And we could see, you know, the you could see the future, you know, TV was changing. And so um, so that's what pulled me back in to be to be part of that leadership. What does yep. the newsroom of tomorrow look like? So so that's why I went back there. And it was, you know, I was there for about nine years and uh, we were able to talk through some of those blueprinting uh, issues, but they uh, we were also tied to the Gazette and the Gazette had some troubles with the printing press at the time. So yep. some of those plans were kind of set aside. So I had to kind of uh, recalibrate what's my leadership role in this newsroom now? How can I be a better leader? So I created and established a mentoring program and an internship program for students. And we uh, probably in the time that I was there, about 150 students went through that. Yeah. I also did that at Channel 7 with the McElroy uh, internship program. I'd, I'd hire interns and set up a program for them to go through as kind of a training program to really build the bench. Yeah. So. Back to that time at, at KWWL, um, did you get nervous? I mean, there's no do-overs in, in live TV. How did you manage through the nerves of, uh, you know, how did you, did you get better at that? Did you get less nervous as you got more experience? All the time. Well, you know, you know, in kicking, yeah. you got to do it over and over and over again. And you're still nervous. Yeah. Look, think about the times that you came out and the score was tied. And it's all yeah. on your shoulders. Yeah, I'd be nervous in practice too. Yeah. You know, whether it was a, Seriously. a rookie in the NFL or your ninth year, you're still nervous. And, you know, people are watching you. You kind of have a little bit of that. Right. And so I always said, you know what, nervousness is means that you're engaged and that you can channel that nervousness into real success. But you've got to work at that too. That's kind of a trained if 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 you can realize that it's it's something that's trained. If you can take that adrenaline and if you can you know put it into action, I um I often talk about you know we talk about goal setting sometimes and uh, I, I ran a, a marathon across the Grand Canyon and it was all about goal setting and it really matched my personality because. I liked to goal set. Yeah. I like to be able to run five miles and, you know, and then run 10 miles and look back and go, wow, that's great. Okay. Next week I got to run 20 miles. And then we get to the Grand Canyon and look across the Grand Canyon. You're like, what the heck did I do? You know? yeah. And, and you do it and it's a, it's a goal setting. You get it done. 
And that's the same thing, I think, in the newsroom, too, and, and being nervous about something. If you goal set, if you train, if you get in that right mindset, that that um, physical mindset, um, then you can do it. Then you can force force it forward. Where did you see, if you think back as, you know, your rookie year as, uh, you know, as an as an news anchor compared, you know, and then you retired in 2006, where was the most growth? Like where, what was the biggest challenge for you in terms of professional development? What, what did you get the best at? Where did you have the most improvement within that skill? Well, at first it was, it was pretty scary because I'm this young person coming in for, for, as I was a, a one man band reporter. So I was shooting all my own video, doing all my reports when I came in in 1980. And then in 82, when I was on the anchor desk, I still wanted to shoot my own video. So I still went out and did all of that. But I was so young and so green. Yeah. There was so much more to learn. And when I look back, I think, oh, my gosh, you know, did I really do a story on that? Did I really say that in the story? You know, and how, how probably people in the audience were like, wow, she's really young. But as <laughs> you do it, like anything else, as you learn from other people and Ron Steele just just was such a great guy. He was such a great teacher you know, and I had a, I had a, a news director, Grant Price, who is legendary. And he was really the guy that helped make it happen. He trusted me to do uh, good stories, big stories, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and always go out. And the, the, the theory was, or the, <laughs> at least mine was, um, if you go out on one story, you have to bring two stories back. So you yeah. ask enough questions that you are, um, updating that story and you're moving that story forward. So there are some things that, you know, you really learned and um, some things that you just, you know, uh, that were unique to television. Yeah. So you had built this amazing, you know, 25 year plus career in the newsroom. Talk us through what that decision looked like for you to make that career transition. Did you, did you have mentors? Was it family? What, what was the sort of the calculus and the process leading up to, to making that first big career change? It was everything, you know, so you come to a point in your career, you go, okay, I've, I've covered that story. Yep. I've covered that story again. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Now we're into the third iteration, you know, and we're going to really lead with a garage fire. Is that what we're going to do, you know, today, <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like that. Plus uh, our second child had been born. Mary Fran um, was born in 96 and I thought, okay, she was getting old enough where I really wanted to spend more time with her at night because really Mark and I had raised our kids. I was the daytime mom. Mm -hmm. He was the nighttime dad, you yeah. know, and we'd get together on the weekends. Yeah. The right. whole family would get together. So I just thought, okay, I, I need to change that a little bit. I still want to do, I still want to be in communication somehow, do some work in communications. And so the four Oaks job, yeah. came open. It was crisis communication, you know, 900 employees, 16 different sites doing all kinds of work for children uh, in child welfare. And I was uh, selected to, you know, be their communications person, their chief information officer for a while. And I loved that job. It was working very closely in a very different way, yeah. but using those same skill sets. So I would say some of those big leaps came when I came to a realization that, you know what, I, I've done this before, where's my growth? I need more growth and I need to take a bigger risk in doing that. Yeah. And salary was an option. You know, I looked, I thought, okay, how much less, how much is my salary going to be cut? 
Or yeah. am I am I going to be able to gain this back? Am I going to be able to, you know, um, go up to the salary that I was at before? And I did. I worked really hard to get it done and I did it. Yeah. What was the biggest or, you know, talk about retooling or creating a new skill set. You talked about what you brought with you from journalism and the newsroom over to your role at Four Oaks and child welfare, just around communication skills and those sort of things. What was, you know, what was the new skill set you had to develop? What was the biggest oh. challenge about making that transition? It was um, so in reporting, you're reporting about a lot of things and you're reporting the, the, the deepness of those depends on how much time you have, you know, mm -hmm. how much time you have to work on it or how much time you have on air to report it. So it's kind of like a sub level. But going into Four Oaks was um, not as wide, but it was very, very deep. So it was very deep into child welfare. What yep. did that look like? What were the funding streams? How could we fundraise more? Um, what were the regulate rules and regulations around child welfare? How could we make? How could we help children get better? And and how could we um, help them enter the workforce? You know, and be able to manage their behaviors and manage their mental health. And that was the goal. So that got very very deep. And as I was doing that, I started to understand how legislation, how government and child welfare were intertwined. And I started listening to people who were in politics and they never, the word children or child never crossed their lips. Yeah, never popped up. Yeah. Never popped up. And I listened in on an appropriations meeting where they talked for an hour and a half about adult mental health and about 15 minutes on ch children's mental health. I thought, this is really screwed up. We got to flip this yeah. where we put more money into children's mental health because it's going to pay off in the long run yeah. instead of wait until someone's an adult and they've had a whole childhood experience and, and, you know, really a lifetime of experience leading up to their mental health and no one's helped them. So we've got to, you know, we had to reverse it. So I had an opportunity to run and that's why I ran. And luckily my employer was very supportive of it. Mm -hmm. Not scared away, you know, because a lot yeah. of employers are. He wasn't afraid of that. And he said, get in there and help kids. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done. Yeah, that's awesome. And you, I mean, you mentioned it uh, earlier in the conversation, you know, your family has a rich history of service. You're, you're uh, you know, World War II veteran and a, and a mom that was a school teacher. And um, was that sort of, was politics and government, was it always sort of a little bit in the back of your mind early on in your professional career? Is it always something you kind of had an, had an eye on? Oh, yeah. My dad would open the paper every day at breakfast and he'd start reading us stories out of the Quad City Times, mm -hmm. you know, and he and he'd say, OK, you're going to go to school. You're going to have current events. You guys are you're all set up as three daughters. You know, he's a dad, yeah. dad daughter, daughter, dad. And um, um, and he was he was an Irish Democrat from way back, a member of the NFO, you know, all that stuff. What he did one time that just impressed me the most was no till farming was starting in the 70s. Mm -hmm. No one was doing it. Yeah. And he went out to this seminar that ISU was holding, the Iowa Extension Service was holding. And being on the County Conservation Commission, he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try this no-till farming. And my mom was like, no, you're not. Because mm -hmm. she knew what kind of weeds were going to grow, right? <laughs> in that right. first iteration of no-till farming. And he said, no, I am going to put that field right out in the front 40, so that everybody driving by on the gravel road is going to see this thing. And she, I, I tell you, I never heard more argument between my mom and dad <laughs> as that time in my life. And so, of course, you know, he planted, uh, he planted beans there. And 
total weed, just, just a weed patch. And he sent the three daughters out with scythes to, you know, to weed the, the, the yeah. weed field. And people would drive by saying, oh my God, Jimmy Ruman is drunk again. You know, I mean, what's yeah. going on there? <laughs> and really it was his way of trying, you know, something. And he was just one of those guys that would, he wasn't afraid to try. Yeah. So the next year it got better. And the year after that. And so he was kind of setting an example of what no-till looked like. His yields were very low the first year. The second year, he rotated to corn much better. Third year, back to back to beans. You know, it was all about compression of soil, all that kind of stuff at the time, which now I look back and I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe he did it. But yeah. it was a great example of taking a risk. And my parents were all about that. So Yeah, that's great. Did you have any pressure during your time at Four Oaks, you, as you sort of transition and, and with an eye starting to go towards politics and government, were there people in your ear pressuring you or, you know, asking you, hey, when, when are you, you going to jump in? And how did that uh, work its way into your calculus on when to do it? I always admire folks that, you know, they've gotten into politics and, you know, especially someone like you, you know, very likable and almost, you know, unanimously liked. And then now all of a sudden you're jumping into politics and now that you're going to have a whole, whole cross section of whatever it might be, 30, 40 percent of the people out there that are going to not dislike you personally, but dislike your policy or whatever that might be. Yeah. I mean, was that kind of with that pressure people want you to jump into that, but you kind of saying, Hey, I might, I'm, I kind of might not want that sort of that life for myself. How did that, how did you kind of balance those, those, those things? Yeah. You pretty much lose half your friends, you know, it's such a huge sacrifice and no one likes to be, yeah. you know, on the message boards or whatever, you know, that's, that's tough. T talk a bit about, you know, how, how you thought through that. Yeah, well, you know, everything's about relationships, whether it's business or whether it's politics or whether it's journalism, it's about relationships. So um, uh, the first time I was approached to run for office, I was still a reporter and I had gone out to Tom Vilsack's office to interview him. When I got back to my office, I got a call from someone in his office and uh, they asked me if I had ever considered running for office. And I just laughed. I said, I'm a journalist. Yeah. We don't do that, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, but it kind of planted a seed. Yeah, it's and, flattering. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. At the time, they wanted me to run against Jim Leach hmm. for Congress, yeah. you know, and, and the most moderate Republican in a Democratic county, right? right. And yeah. he never lost. He never lost. Right. So along comes Dave Loebsack and he defeated him that year. So, so that was okay. So I went, well, okay. Then the next time was um, when I was uh, when I was at Four Oaks and I was approached by uh, the Speaker of the House, who was a Democrat, and he wanted me to run against a young, you know, politician that was just getting started, Craig Paulson, who eventually became the Speaker of the House and a good friend of mine. Yep. So I, I said, no, I, I don't think I want to do that. They asked me again to do it, you know, and, you, and each time you kind of have a hard time saying no because you're thinking. What could I do if if I won? What could I do in the positive, especially for me, for child welfare? What could right. I do? So then I got a call that Swati Dandekar was going to resign from her position, her last year of her Senate term, hmm. and that um, they were going to do a special election to fill her spot for one year. And it was to save the Democratic majority in the Senate by one vote. So it was the 26th seat. Yep. Out of 50. Right. It was the majority vote. And at the time I thought, well, it's now or never. This is this is a seven week campaign. Let's jump in. 
and I did it and we won and we held the majority for quite a while. And then, um, and then things changed, but I'm glad that I did it. I wish I had run for office sooner because once you get in there and you realize, oh my goodness, there's just a lot of stuff we can do and a lot of people we can talk to and we can really write the ship. We can turn it and write it and, um, and make things better for kids and for adults. Yeah. It's what I've always also admired about people in government is there's just almost like an endless amount of challenges, problems to solve. How do you, how do you go about prioritizing the issues at hand? And, and, you know, some, and then the next question behind that is how do you uh, design your day? I mean, how do you set, I mean, you could, there's not, there, you need a hundred times more hours in a day to get everything done. I mean, how do you go about designing your day in terms of prioritizing things that you're working on the beginning and the end? I mean, how talk a bit about that. Yeah. Everything's on fire, right? Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. And, it, and it's not unlike business where you can come into a business environment and everything's on fire because things are changing so much. So you could, you know, Mark and I are, we uh, own a family business. It's an advertising agency. We have 40 employees. And, yep. and so he meets the same kinds of challenges that I do. Everything could be on fire, but you have to prioritize and you have to figure out where's my lane and what's the lane that will get me to the end product. What's the end goal. Mm -hmm. And so um, with, with politics, you've got two different things. You've got policy and then you've got campaigning, right? So the policy part of it is you're assigned to a, a certain committee And you try to stay focused on some of the elements in that committee because another elected official who's your teammate or your colleague, they're also, they're going to be on different committees and they're going to be relaying things to you and you're going to be giving information to them to keep them updated by the time you go to vote. So you kind of split the work up, but your constituency is still calling you about everything and they're emailing you about everything. So you have to stay up to date. You have to be informed. And I am probably, my fault is that I say yes a lot more than I say no. (laughs) And and I'm learning how to say no a little bit more, (laughs) but saying yes has gotten me to where I am, you know, and I feel comfortable saying yes, unless I'm stressed out from saying yes and being pulled all over. But saying yes and sitting down and talking with people and you always learn more about whatever the issue is and how there are gaps in government resources or services. And you you think, oh, how can we, I wonder how many people this is happening to. Maybe we could make a change in this. And then you, you kind of start looking through it. At the state level, we only have clerks and our clerks are only with us from you know January yeah. through April. I really lucked out because I got the greatest clerk in the world and she helps me uh, you know all throughout the year do some things and contact people and arrange things. So so that's kind of how the day looks between you know January and April. The rest of the year I'm meeting with people, you know, I'll make, I'll probably have 60, 70 meetings before the next legislative session begins next January on just topics related to what the next session holds. And it might be something we didn't get done last session or the session before that, or something that we really need to dig into and move forward. I really, I make time for as many people as I can during the day. I'm pretty organized with my calendar and, um, And again, I have to kind of, it's almost like data analysis. What is this meeting going to bring at the end? What's the outcome at the end? Are we moving the conversation forward? 
It's like business. Are we moving our business forward? Are we making good transitions? And it's the same thing that you can apply to politics. Yeah, that's great. And then one last question before we get into some of our uh, rapid fire questions here at the end. So, I mean, is what's the next chapter in the career? There's been there's been amazing chapters for you. Um, and, you know, back again to this, the question about pressure that, uh, you know, I know, you know, your name's been thrown around, and, you know, continue to move up the ranks in terms of leadership and, uh, you know, state government, federal government. What, what, what goes into that next decision for you in terms of what, what the, what the next chapter holds? Yeah, I've been fairly cautious about how I, how I've moved forward in politics, but I think it's that journalism side of me that I take in all the information before, you know, like before I was serving yeah. up a story to the viewers. I wanted to get as much information as I could to be very sure-footed. Yeah. And I think that's what I've done in my political career too. And at some point you have to say, okay, it's ready. For, I'm ready for the next step. And I believe that I am ready for the next step. So I think people will probably learn about that in the, <laughs> the next month or two. And, um, and uh, I hope to serve the people of the state of Iowa in a different way. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. You're doing a, an amazing job now in, in that service. And that's something I've admired about, uh, you know, this political chapter in your career is just, it, seems like it, it's genuinely rooted in a, in a place of service and, you know, it's, you're, you're doing a, a great service to the entire state of Iowa. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank yeah. You. Um, we love to, we wrap up all these interviews, just some quick uh, rapid fire questions. Um, how much of your success would you contribute to luck versus hard work? Hmm, about 50, 50. <laughs> Even split. I like it. Yeah. Uh, if given the chance, what profession other than your own or the other couple that you had prior to uh, government, would you most like to attempt? Master gardener or <laughs> uh, an arborist. I think, you know, just, just lately uh, arborist, definitely, but master gardener, really be good at it. You yeah. know, it goes back to the soil, goes back to the earth where I, you know, gr gr growing up on a farm. Yeah. It could be a good side hustle for you. I could see with the little yeah. farmer's market, a stand at the <laughs> farmer's market down in downtown Cedar Rapids there. That'd be yeah. good. You want to invest? <laughs> yeah. And we've all learned to appreciate those arborists, haven't we, over the course of the yes, last we have. Those yes, trees we have. Are, those trees are special. Uh, how about a, a business, uh, someone in business specifically? Has there been a leader, either someone locally or nationally, or someone that you've looked up to or admired? Well, I, this is going to sound hokey, but my husband. I mean, just watching him go from absolutely zero. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, and, and and we put up my 401k, you know, for, for collateral <laughs> when he's starting yeah. a small business and and his two business partners and how like the first Christmas party we had at our house, they were all in the kitchen just going, Oh my God. Yeah, these people impressive. have families. We yeah. have to feed these families. <laughs> we have to keep payroll. Are we gonna make payroll at the end of the month? So watching him do this for 26 years. Yeah. It's been remarkable and growing a business and now a business in Cedar Falls and he's got an office in Cedar Rapids and in Wausau, Wisconsin, and he made it through the pandemic. Yeah. So, and he's, and he's kind of this guru and people come to him all the time and ask him, how should we do this marketing plan? Yeah. How, you know, what's the logo? What's a good, you know, and he's just kind of a guru, but it's because he's really worked hard at it. He reads a lot. He, oh man, he talks to a lot of people. He attends a lot of conferences and, um, yeah. and really works at it. He's a, he's, he's a good study. I'd say Mark Mathis, my yeah. husband. That's great. Speaking of books, um, is there been a book, uh, either business or politics that's been in influential to your career? One that you would recommend folks to read? Well, one I really liked was Blink. 
Sure. You yeah. know, and, well. and I used I used that in journalism too. I mean, it was and Freakonomics, of course. Yeah. You know, Freakonomics is great, and their podcast is great. I love that. So yeah, so those kinds of Malcolm Gladwell, you know, um, um, Hidden Persuaders with you know uh, talking. That's an oldie but goodie. It's yeah. about advertising. And so those kinds of things, I think in terms of journalism, uh, you know, the books are, or, or actually the practices are some of the, you know, the best journals. Walter Cronkite talks about storytelling. Um, Dan Rather has a book. There's also um, a book that I love to refer to. William Sapphire um, uh, wrote a book called Lend Me Your Ears. And it was a compilation of the greatest speeches. Oh, cool. Of, all the leaders and uh, across the the country at the time and yeah. it just amazing just an amazing research project yeah we didn't even get into that that's a whole nother interview it's just the art of the art of a good speech there's yeah. there's, something, yes. there's something in there too yeah. uh how about podcast or tv show it doesn't have to necessarily be business or politics related just you know what's what do you throw on or what's on that what's on the netflix queue at home oh yeah oh god <laughs> over the place usually it's whoever has the remote right yeah. so we've been watching right now we've been watching bosch okay. i don't know if you went yeah okay this so that's the netflix but i also we also watched on iowa public tv the uh hemingway yeah that's the, great uh the documentary on hemingway yeah was yeah very good um and we just you know we've watched everything from oh golly um what what is it now i never get it right it's heat fat acid uh, whatever. It's a book on nutrition, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. how uh, this woman travels around, you know, the world. There's another one called Psalm uh, mm -hmm. about master sommeliers. Yeah, that's great. It's, it is. You've got to see it. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's what I've been watching. Awesome. Uh, how about a motivational quote? Anything that you have up, had, had up on the desk or something that's been impactful in your life or career? Oh yeah. <laughs> this is one I got from Ron Steele and he, he would laugh if he knew I still use this. He always says failure to prepare is to prepare for failure. <laughs> There's some truth <laughs> in that. And TV, sure. seriously, you know, yeah. that, that is really it. And you can apply it to anything. You just got to be ready. You've yeah. got to be ready. That's great. 30 extra minutes in a day. What would you do with it? Read. Awesome. Read, read, read. I'm an avid reader. I get up at about five in the morning and I start reading. I read till uh, maybe seven thirty, eight o'clock. And it could be. And usually it's uh, the Washington Post. It's the Gazette. I read my Twitter feed. I read my email. Read, read, read. Uh, and then I, I'm reading a book right now called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's huh. uh, an indigenous botanist who talks about the earth. And it's fantastic. Huh, that's great. And then final question, uh, in just one sentence, how would you define success? I'd say um, when people are helped positively by the work you do, that's success. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Nate. I'm glad that you watched me growing up. That's great. <laughs> Back in the day when you, you know it was turned it on and our folks were, we watched... Uh, Watch the news religiously. So it was good. My, all my family's in Muscatine. Obviously, grew up here in Iowa City. So yeah, it was. Yeah. I grew up with all you guys on on the TV set with the old the old box TV. So yeah, I love it. Fun. I love it. 
And yeah. I watched you too, many, many weekends of oh, Hawkeye yeah. football. Um, so thank you for the thrills and spills and all that stuff that you brought <laughs> to us. Yeah, it'll be, we'll be, I'll be back in Kinnick here this fall, which will be fun. It'll be good. Great, great. Go Hawks. Oh, yeah. This episode was produced by Joe Coffey of Coffee Grande Studios. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CB Journal. 